Podcast One production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. The word genius has been thrown around a lot in Hollywood, but when it comes to Baz Luhrmann, I think it fits. Having known him since the early days of Strictly Ballroom, I've watched him create the most amazing works of art, like Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby, but also his opera La Boheme. He gives everything to his projects and often ropes his wife, four-time Oscar-winning production and costume designer Catherine Martin, into it too. Not bad for a boy who came from a town so small, he's willing to bet you if you think yours was smaller. Here's Baz. Thank you so much for for doing this podcast for Aussies in Hollywood. I, you know, you you guys have been around a lot longer. There's a whole new wave that's come in, and Thank you God were trailblazers in yeah. many many ways. And it's just fascinating, particularly you and your story, given that you started out in like the tiniest little town. Yep. In, on the other side of the world at a time where Australia wasn't that connected to anything, even if you were in a city. So let's just sort of start out with that because um, it's kind of hard to believe that you've had this journey and we're sitting here in this fancy New York apartment with this stunning view, you know. This is the office. <laughs> <laughs> um. yeah, so you were in Heron's Creek. So what was the population? Well, Jenny, funny you say that because I don't think of it like, I don't think I ever had a moment of going like, oh, wow, you know, because I was too busy being in it, in the journey. And if I, if I be really, really honest, which, you know, always comes out as hugely pretentious and myth-making, but maybe that's the, not only is it the work that I'm in and the life that I'm in, but maybe I was always a mythomaniac, who knows, you know, it's just a way of seeing things. But I will tell you something. I'm quite often, in terms of the scale of Heron's Creek, I'm quite often... After a few sherries, I don't mind having the odd bet. And I love the, the game. I quite often play the game, particularly when I'm in, in the US, of going like, people go like, oh, you know, hey, uh, well, I'm from a real small country town out there. some down, down there in the south there, real small. And I'll say like, well, you know, they'll say, well, I said, look, don't bet me. And they'll go in for the bet. And I'll go, oh, all right, well, seven. And he goes, well, 7,000. I mean, I, I'll go down. No, I mean, seven houses. You know, of which not all of them were full, right? So I always win that bet. It was a very, very tiny place. It was kind of half a town, really. I mean, it was on a... We lived on the... What was then a highway that became a freeway. in northern New South Wales, right? Yeah, inland from Port Macquarie. What's... Uh, inland from Port Macquarie, near Warhope. Then, and, and, my, and the closest real town, I mean, we had Erin's Creek, which is still a timber town. I mean, it was all about timber. But there was a place called Kendall, and that was a beautiful little place. Um, and then the Hastings River. I mean, Scott Hastings is named after the Hastings River. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> and I, I believe, I've never seen this, but something tells me, apparently there's a history trail that you can go on because it's a tourist attraction, right? And um, I think there's a, there might be in the history trail walk or something. So Really? Where yeah, you, you grew know, up? You know you've made it when you're like a museum. <laughs> you're in a museum. 
So your dad ran at different points, the gas station and other things, and at one point the local theatre, is that right? My mum and my dad, I think, together were quite a dynamic couple. I mean, I'm only saying this to you now. I don't think I've ever really said this before. Somewhere in there was a great imagination because they ballooned up this little gas station into... I mean, mum had a dress shop and then dad was always inventing things and there was signage and then they had a restaurant and the restaurant had to have sizzle plates and we all served in the restaurant. And then there was this cultural thing where like dad would be, we'd have all these people stay with us, like a, a painter called Brian Morris stayed with us and taught us to paint. So we were sort of, as I like to say, the Renaissance players of Heron's Creek. You know, dad was obsessed and mum too, that we should have all sorts of experiences. And at some point, the whole cinema part of it is very early on when Dad came out of the Vietnam War, he, was, he met my mother through photography. So he taught us photography very early and how to use a film camera, Biolex. I was making movies very early. And when the next town that supplied the gasoline to us, the petrol, right, they ran the local cinema in a place called Loriton. It's still there. And when Sylvia, I believe, was the name of, the, of his wife... We used to go down there and watch the movies. That was the big thing for us. When her husband died, there was no one that could run the cinema. So dad used to run a Bell and Howe 16 mil and knew how to thread. And so he went down and it wasn't long. I mean, I, in my mind, it was amazing because we got to sit in the bio box and you know, tin cans would turn up with Hello Dolly written on them. Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, um, yeah, Dad ran the, the movie house down there for a while and we helped in the snack bar and things like that. But he, he basically ran the projection. So when did you fall in love with film? The real admission, I mean, you, we had only one channel, maybe two. There was ABC, you would know all this. ABC, and maybe there was one like, now I realise it's probably Channel 9, the derivative version. Would have been the country Some, channel. Exactly, NBC, uh, something, 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 right? And, um, you know, northern New South Wales, you know, coming to you. And, but here's the thing, and I've told this years ago, so I haven't told this for a while, but back in the day of going, where did Moulin Rouge come from, the Red Curtain trilogy, that kind of sensibility and that, that sort of visual language, that harking back to old musicals and all of that. And, in fact... The red curtain comes from the fact that at our cinema there was a red curtain and at the beginning of the screening, this is how times have changed, you had to stand and there was a projection of, of the Queen of England on a horse and we had to sing God Save the Queen. Wow. I mean, that really happened in my lifetime, <laughs> right? Um, but I do remember, I mean, on television what was curious was as filler, um, what you've got to remember is in the 70s, cinema that is like things like Citizen Kane and the Red Shoes and things like that were packaged and it was it's kind of filler on television so there was that and then the I abs, absolute distinct memories as a kid of sitting in the bio box when dad got to project and the, just seeing this machine go clatter 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 and dad pulling the film out of the tin can and holding up to the light and showing the perforations and going and seeing you know, you're, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and seeing Lawrence or Dr. Doolittle, you know, and seeing the picture and going, my God, that, how do you make that? So there was that. And Jenny, I've got one other quick story actually about cinema and Heron's Creek. The other hook, I guess, I mean, I was always into it. All I can ever remember is not just the movies, but theatre and magic and 
all of that, doing that ever since I was a child. And dad encouraged it. And so did mum, actually. And then there was ballroom dancing, but let's not digress. <laughs> I, I do remember. Yeah, we didn't even get to the ballroom dancing. Yeah, no, that'll come. But it came early. Of course. The well, ballroom also, dancing. Also, so all the com combined things that led to Strictly Ballroom. Yeah, well, well, it was a theatrical. My parents definitely encouraged us. We were isolated. So our imagination and creativity was definitely encouraged. And we had all sorts of it. And we were exposed to all sorts of it. Um, but I do remember one thing. One day, this old 20s car pulls in and it had these kind of metal brackets on the side of it. And I think Dad might have said, what was that about? I said, Dad, what is that about? And he said, oh, they're, um, that's where they put a platform in. They're shooting a movie. And I went, what, you mean like a movie movie? And he went like, yeah, I mean, I'm 10. He said, oh. And I was like, yeah, you mean like a movie in the movies, movies? And he went, yeah. He said, they put the platform in there so they can stand there with a camera. And Dad was always very, you know, full of technical advice. Um, and he said, they put the camera in there to get that, you know, to shoot the person driving the car. And I went, and in that moment I went, so you mean in my mind we can make movies here in Australia? He went, oh, yeah, mate. So... I, there wasn't. An, I don't have a distinct epiphany. I just, to be honest, and it's always, I'm sure. I don't know how it sounds, but the bottom line is that I just always have done what I am doing now. Even as I see it with you, pretty much the same thing. Just dream things up and go. Yes, well, that should be easy. <laughs> <laughs> it never turns out to be easy. Well, it seemed like your the first thing you got more involved with was actually in front of the camera as well. You did yeah, well, some little trivia things I didn't know that oh you'd yeah. done some episodes of a country practice. I, are you kidding? You mean you haven't seen Jerry no. the Pig Farmer? I mean, I was in the first episodes. <laughs> and then I, I, I actually progressed. So you got a role opposite Judy Davis, didn't you? In oh, well, that was later. Yeah, Winter I mean, of Our Dream. That was, hey, hey, that was the big time. Um, actually, do you know what? Not only was I Jerry the Pig Farmer, but I went on and became the hearse driver. But simultaneously... When I was doing the television roles, I was funding my first theatre company. So I was always doing too much. I mean, I, I started this little theatre company with Nell Schofield called The Bond. So, and we had a theatre company down on Bondi Beach. It was called The Bond and we, were, we, we did our productions on Bondi Beach in that little theatre that's in the Bondi Beach Pavilion. And then I was doing country practice and I was... Um, yeah, and then I was actually before the picture I did with Judy which, of course, was huge for me. No, actually, that's wrong. I was in high school. That was the first thing I ever did. The first, even before country practice, the first thing I ever did, I was at high school and I went in and I, ha I was going to theatre and doing all sorts of things. I'd run away then from the north, went to Christian Brothers, then I went to where I met Craig at the surf school, I guess. So you'd ended up going to school um, outside Heron and then that sort of... To two different schools. I The family sort of broke up a bit. I did a runner. I re-started uh, living again with my mum. She put me in Christian Brothers College, which is where, by the way, the college is where I shot The Great Gatsby. The mansion in The Great Gatsby is, in fact, my old school. And then I didn't quite gel there because it was an all-boys school. And I come from quite a progressive school up the North Coast, actually, because the Catholic diocese was trying this new system and and I often have just recently been thinking about thinking gee was that an influence on creativity because one day a week was sort of creative day they changed their system so that 
teachers moved around, not the classes. And for some reason this saved a whole day and so on and so forth. But it was a very progressive school. The Christian Brothers wasn't. Then I went to Narrabeen High, which was kind of a surf school. And at some point I just imagined I would go on and create and have a theatre company and do be in movies and things. It didn't happen at the end of NIDA, at the end of high school. And I auditioned for the National Institute of Dramatic Art. And of all the um, slightly far-flung things that might have happened in my life, this really did happen in exactly the way I'm telling you. I, I found that I didn't get into the National Institute of Dramatic Art and I was coming home the day, you know, you leave high school and I was like, oh, my God. And my mother was very much like, you know, now this whole being in the <laughs> arts thing, you know, reality check. And I've never been that tethered to reality. Um, and uh, believe it or not, the phone rang and someone said, oh, hello there. Um, look, you know that audition you did? Uh, and they, they'd like you to play the role opposite Judy Davis. You know, the Judy really liked you and everything. And I, I, I was like, well, this is great thinking it would be amateur and they said and you know we you'll only be getting paid two thousand dollars and in those days i was thinking two thousand dollars you know so i when mum came home she said so bass have you decided what you're going to do i mean it's time to you know face reality <laughs> <laughs> you know and mum was actually pretty theatrical herself i mean <laughs> she had a great love of drama and things and i said yeah mum actually i'm going to be in this movie and she said oh yes like, I'd already made a lot of amateur films. And yeah. He said, oh, yes, but I mean, a real job. I said, well, they're going to pay me $2,000. It's funny how when you say they're going to pay you money and you're growing up, <laughs> suddenly people completely change. They go yeah. like, oh, that's a real job. And of course it is. It's to find money. <laughs> so there we are, Jenny. A very wandering, meandering, you know, telling of that part. So, so you didn't get into NIDA then. You tried again. Is that what happened? Actually, what happened was I then went on It was pretty much... As I remembered, I would have done, I did a war film and then I was doing different films and then I started my theatre company. I mean, I had so much layers of stuff going on, which is interesting. Which is usual for you. It's actually the same thing as happening right now. I'm in next door going, how do I keep all these things? Uh, like, there's a difference between sort of exploring them and then actually committing. Because once I'm committed, it becomes singular. And it becomes so singular, I think, I want to block everything else out. It might be self-medication, you know, from, yeah, yeah. from ADT or whatever it is, <laughs> DDT, whatever, one of those. And um, But I had lots of things going on. And then I I actually was, I mean, John Dygan cast me in this other movie in a, in a lead role and I had a lot of that work going on. I had the theatre going on. What was the lead role in the John Dygan? It movie? was a film that ended up being set in the Sydney Opera House. I can't remember. It was about the last day of the world set in the Sydney Opera House. Oh, yeah. And Tyler Coppin was in it. And so I had that role. But I, this is the rub. I also had uh, started a romantic relationship with the daughter of a uh, producer of The Wind of Our Dreams called Gabby Mason who became a great pal and friend but... We were in a relationship and she was working at... She was on, I think, one of the soapies. And at night I was living in King's Cross. And I became fascinated with this idea of devising stories. So I started this kind of before reality television to do this idea of doing a drama where I would become one of the characters in the street, absorb it, develop a script, a drama, and it would become 
a drama, right? You know, this is the one you did with Mike Willisie. Yeah, but why exactly? So what happens in the middle of it is, I start doing this thing, and the material's so like edgy and in your face, and we can't get the money. We can't get the money from a film. Nobody in film. Everyone thinks, "What's this kid doing? It's too ridiculous." But Mike Willisie goes, "Gee, this." this few test footage we shot because Gabby's brother comes in and starts shooting me but the kids don't know I'm actually not one of them you know I'm playing a role I mean it's I look back and I go this is not exactly the most moral thing you could be doing no and (laughs) I was just kind of being a bit part James Bond and part actor I suppose and but totally absorbed in the world this this is a pattern I think is the need to just get lost inside someone's universe you know and anyway, long story short, around the time I, I eventually get into NIDA, I didn't really succeed in any of the auditions. They just kind of said, listen, we'll sort of turn up again and audition. You'll probably get in. Because by then I was... But I had to choose between the movie and my theatre company. And I did... And I was doing play. I was doing several plays at that time. So anyway, long story short is I go back to NIDA then and I gave up the movie and that Kids of the Cross came out. And everyone thought I was kind of a dangerous street kid, but I really wasn't. I was just a, a geek from the country. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Strictly Ballroom came about as a, as a play that you all developed while you were at NIDA. Yeah, like self-devising and self-creating and that process. I mean, NIDA at that time was, I mean, NIDA I'm sure at all times is a really, um, it's a great school. And so many of us owe so much to that place. Um, but in those early days when it was just a bunch of shacks, military shacks on the University of New South Wales, one of the great strengths was it was very much into like self-devising story, primary myth understanding, and that became a great passion of mine, like understanding that all stories had this kind of underlying courage. And we were exposed to like so many great international artists that would come and do workshops and things. So while we were there, there was a opportunity to self-devise a show. And, you know, Jenny, I've got to tell you, there was this conflict within me, I think, and I look back on it and I go, because I was sort of, I was acting, and acting just seemed, when you're young, it seems, A, easier. It certainly seems more glamorous. You get to sit in the canvas chair and go, you know, and you look at actors and you go, wow, what a life, you know. And I already had made many things. And I'd already felt the bite, the savage bite of responsibility. That when you make something, it's just the moment you say to everyone, look, come on, let's go down this road and make something. You, well, I do anyway. I feel responsible for everybody. And I think I profoundly wanted to avoid that. I mean, I really did not want that responsibility. And anyway, I remember we doing the devised opportunity came up. And so I put up a little sign that said, cha-cha-cha, one, two, three or something. And the idea I brought to the table was why don't we take a primary myth and set it in in the world of ballroom dancing. Now, my mother at that time was in fact, and my sister, my mother was teaching and competing and my sister was competing. We had already grown up. Competitive ballroom dancing was a huge part of our youth because we got, it was sort of like working class theatre. You know, we got to run off to Newcastle and dress up in costumes and act out characters and it was it was a gorgeous wonderful majestic um romantic escapism so i revisit it as a younger you know uh, creative as a world and also as a metaphorical world 
And then there was also another boy in the class, um, Glenn Keenan, who was a ballroom dancer as well. So we sort of shared this simpatico. You know, we shared this, uh, it was a shared narrative. We understood what the world was. And so with that group of actors, we sort of shaped up a story. We, we actually, I actually, to be honest, I put everybody through a quite rigorous process of self-examination. There was this thing called the hot seat. These were the devices that we'd learned where, you know, we'd have to examine what are you really worried about? What do you really feel about? What are your actual feelings? I mean, it was part psychology. It was crazy, really. But we learned about that we were concerned about the Cold War. We were concerned about creative oppression. I mean, this sounds high, high, high strung, but we really did this. And out of that, then I started, and there's a, even footage of this in one of the latter documentaries that gets made that Craig came on and made when we did the tour version, um, where you see line banking. And this thing of line banking was where, which is, I, I use it today. So you set up primary structure, you set up scenes, you improvise, you get great lines, you, you bank them, and then you write the scenes based on some of the key lines. You sort of flower out from the scenes. So that process we did, and at night I would sit with Jamie Robertson, who was a great friend, and Catherine McClemens, who became more than a friend. Let's not go into details, but she was a great girlfriend, really. We had a great relationship going on. And, um, and then with the rest of the gang, we would do... Uh, Glenn did the choreography, and we collectively made this... It was about 40 minutes, this tiny little play. And I was in it. And, in fact... The two characters, although there's a little bit of me in the main character, there's a lot of, there was a lot of actually my, um, my mom and her then um, um, husband observed in it. Uh, there were touchstones. They weren't dead accurate, but there were touchstones. And even my mother's doing a little bit. There's a lot of, lots of my family members spread throughout. I mean, in the actual movie, it's not that they're, dead accurate representations, but my sister always laughs at the fact that when you see Ken Railing, Sparama and all of that, at the time my brother had just set up his own business. So there were sort of references. There's all these little references. Anyway, long story short is that we do that 30 minutes and I was in it. And I, look, Strictly Borum had an amazing journey. It continues today. But do you know what? I was on stage the first performance. Because we were, there were about four other shows. Everyone got to devise their own shows. We weren't the only one. It was like you had to do a creative show. And I always remember just the student performance and at the end the lights coming down and just that wave of reaction. And even though it was students and parents and friends and all that, just that reaction, the, the heat of that reaction, the, the wave of energy, I remember at the end of it going, oh, both being elated and going like, right, that's never going to go away. I mean, it's a weird thought I know to have. You know? Yeah. yeah. And not in a not in a particularly positive way, just kinda like right, you know, that's never gonna go away. I think I met you when Strictly Ballroom uh premiered in New York. You'd gone through this heady calm film festival yeah. thing. We're cutting through all the versions of Strictly Ballroom, but we get to the film yep. and um and it goes to the Calm Film Festival yep. and um and CM was telling me that uh, she remembered, you know, putting up decorations at the Carlton and all these people descending, wanting to buy the film and the sellers were at breakfast. Um, well, I think she te she te she's telling you the polite version of that, but it's all true. I mean, the real truth is, I don't know, look, 
the movie of the making of Strictly Ballroom, I mean, you got to go way back. I mean, let's not do too much background on it, but very simply, it's in my then second company that I form. I get this gig at the Sydney Theatre Company. It's much desired. It's high profile. There's quite a lot of very things not going well at all. And I the sting and the pain of of leading people into a a burning cauldron where they're all being shamed is something you never forget. And that happened with the first show. We come back with a little version of Strictly Ballroom at the end. Um, Tristan Mile, Ted Albert see it. They want to form a film company. I say, well, I'm making a movie anyway. And they go, all right, well, we'll go with you. I guess they just back my chutzpah, really. And there's a long journey there where we try to get it made. Nobody wants to make it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, comping this right down very quickly. No one wants to make it. We go to Cannes. I mean, I can't even get to see Fox. I end up seeing a company called Fox Lauber that make porn films. And I think that's just because <laughs> Tina Sparkle's on the cover and she hasn't got a lot of clothes on. I mean, oh, it's that bad, right? Yeah. And I've got the hot suit and people laugh in our face. Tristan and I, we can't get the money. And in those days, if you get anybody, an outside distributor to agree, it didn't matter how much money you had, you wouldn't get the government grant. So eventually we pretty much fail. We did find one guy um, in Canberra who really loved the movie and he had like two cinemas and Andrew, and he was great. Anyway, long story short, we sort of finally get there. We finally get there, and with great tragedy and immense sadness, because I absolutely adored Ted Albert. He was a really phenomenal human being. He was part of a music family, discovered ACDC and all of that, and he was like a very lovely gentleman. And he tragically died just out of the blue. It was a complete shock. And very few times in my life have I found myself completely shocked. The beautiful part of the story is that his wife, probably against the family wishes, steps in and says, my, my husband knew what talent was. He knew, he believed in people and, and art and creativity. I'm going to back this movie. And she gets there with Tristram and we fight to make the movie. I make the movie. We screen it for the one distributor we have in Australia who has one cinema. I won't name names, but he walks out at the end of the screening. I remember throwing up. And we go, well, what do you think? And I hear back, he says, well, not only is it the worst film I've ever seen, but Pat Bishop, you've ruined her, her career. And I tell you, Jenny, the sadness of this story is that she, Pat Bishop never learns, because she dies before Strictly Hits Can, that she wins the AFI for Best Actress. So at that stage, I go up the coast with CM and with Bill Marin, who's a young designer associate of ours, and I go, well, I guess the film thing's not going to work out. Better be thinking of a theatre show. Shave my head. Got half my hair off. We're in, a, we're in a trailer park, you know, a caravan park, caravan park where Bill lives. And some person had died from being hit on the head with a coconut. And I'm, <laughs> the phone, a Bakerlite phone rings and this woman goes, Bez, Bez, is a man from France on the phone? I'm going like, France, you know. So I've got a bucket over my head. It's raining so I don't get killed by a coconut. Half of my long hair shaved off and a man on the phone says, Hello, this is uh, Pierre Rissillon from the Cannes Film Festival. I've seen the Australian films and I'm going to make you an offer. I don't know why it sounds like Marlon Brando. And, not like <laughs> and I'm going to make you an offer to screens at 12 o'clock, but you have to decide within one week. And if you go to in certain regard, there was this whole politics, I think the year before, that proof or something had gone to the other. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, uh, Pierre, I don't think I need a week. I'll see you there. <laughs> And pretty much, bang, we screen it the first night. And it's a bit of a joke. I remember my now agent of, you know, 30 years, 20 years, Robert, and Peter Rice, who now pretty much, right? 
They saw the poster. We made our own poster. <laughs> and they went, that is either a Bollywood movie, it's so crazy, whatever it is, that's original. Let's go. They go. That night there's only half a cinema and you, you know how you hear the cheers go pop, pop. If people walk out, there's a few pops and I was like, oh, my God. But as soon as the film finished, there's a crowd around us and they followed us back. This is what I think was the defining moment, Jenny. This French security guy, there's a crowd around us like this because we just sat in the chairs, you know. There was no big deal. We were these obscure kids from Australia and they leaned over and this guy goes, and we were being crushed. And this security guy leans over and he goes, Monsieur, come with me. From this moment, your life will never be the same again. And they followed us down to what Sim said, the glass fronted shop where we were mm-hmm. putting up the posters. They sort of partied. The next night there was a second screening. It was unprecedented. And there was a riot. You'll see it in the doco. People couldn't get in and then boom. And it, what Sam's really talking about is that the line around the block for the sales, I think it still has the record for the most independent sales in 24 hours. So it sort of went like that. And, of course, you know, back in Australia, um, Hoyt's picked it up, the opposite of the other company that dropped us. So, you know, but... You don't, you don't worry about revenge because you're so busy dealing with the next thing. You think, well, like, success well, is the best revenge, isn't that what they well, say? Yeah. Funny thing is you don't, you don't think backwards. You just think, well, what now? <laughs> anyway, it's a great story, even as I tell it. The, the backstage, actually Strictly Ballroom, the film, the story of that film, is not unlike the making of Strictly Ballroom. It's the underdog. Sorry. Yeah, overcoming oppression, really. Overcoming the naysayer, outsiders coming together defying the odds, um, believing in there is only one way to cha-cha-cha. <laughs> I still remember I was so excited that, um, that we were able to get the film to the Hollywood Foreign Press and, and it got nominated and so many people were so shocked at the time because they were like, wow, how did that happen? <laughs> you, like, you, well, you know what, Jenny, do you know what's so crazy? This is, I, I don't know if did Sam mention this, this is so crazy that... When it got nominated, I, we were doing, we were already on Midsummer Night's Dream or something, so we didn't even know what it was. Like, we just didn't, didn't occur to us that we would get nominated in something in Los Angeles. So I don't know what happened, but it, and it, it was kind of afterwards that we realised that we'd been nominated for a Globe, you know, that, we, that yeah. something really important had happened. Yeah. It oh. was amazing, actually. That it was amazing, and, it, and it's true of Australia. The great strength of Australia is somewhat its sense of isolation or its own sense of self and it's also sometimes we were talking about it earlier it's paradoxical on the one hand it completely looks outward and embraces the rest of the world and then paradoxically you can be always looking in and being a bit protective of yourself so i think that with strictly ballroom the rest of the world did have to embrace it first actually it really did have to be embraced globally before we were taken seriously at home isn't that, isn't that a common story we hear? Well, you'd know a little bit about that. You know, that's just <laughs> the paradox. It's the paradox. But it also makes you resilient and strong. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I mean, I look, I look at, you know, people you and I know, um, young creatives now coming up, doing amazing things. I mean, Joel Edgerton and his brother. I just look at Jolie who, you know, like, they got on them. It's an, it's an awesome moment for Australian yeah. creativity, I think. Yeah, so most people who have um, success like that start making movie after movie after movie. Yeah. Not you. <laughs> no. um, how many years was it? Don't bring it up just now. It's, it's, it's yeah. rather topical with all of those different folk that, ho- that sort of are involved with me, yeah. Um, 
between Strictly Ballroom and Moulin Rouge? How, how many years? What was that process like for you to come up with the uh, next thing? You, you know, Jenny, it's, it's a couple of things. I don't know, but I've tried to make the gap shorter and it seems to be getting longer. And what I do know is that it's true that I totally wrestle with two or three, so let's call them subjects, and then I almost live them out before coming to this conclusion of not only, firstly, what, how do I self-medicate myself because I really need to deal with this, not necessarily the subject, but the underlying story, myself. Yeah. And then the next thing I have to answer is, is it really worth putting out there? And it's not that I don't, I revere, I went through a film last night with my daughter, which is very rare and random, and don't ask me the name of it. It might have been called A Simple Favour. Yes, it Blake, was. Blake Lively I've was seen it. it. Right. And Blake I was Lively. really... Anna Kendrick. Yeah, right. I thought they were both terrific in it myself. But um, um, I was just sitting there in the movies going, like, you know, if you put something out there, particularly with Netflix and particularly all these other things, it's really got to cut through and it's really got to be worthwhile. And also... I just can't – I try and make things in the way others do and just be a shooter, but I'm involved in every single aspect. And it's not just the initial idea or the music at the end or producing and that. And the, It's the, the depth of collaboration with CM is the same as the depth of collaboration on the writing, is the same as the depth of collaboration on the music, of the, of the getting it made, of the everything. It's just the nature of who I am. So there's that. Plus I have to tell you, I never wanted to be boxed in – I mean, I admire uh, people like Orson Welles and Visconti. And is Orson Welles a filmmaker or a theatre person? Or is he a storyteller or is he an ideas guy? I mean, or is he Orson Welles the actor? I mean, he's the storyteller ideas guy. And the medium is secondary. So I've done – what people don't realise is, is in those gaps, we've done what, what I would call creative adventures. And they're everything from whether it's, you know, like – locking down Fifth Avenue and doing a fun thing with Barney's or a political campaign or right. editing Vogue or Midsummer Night's Dream, the opera or, you know, it's just creative yeah, I, adventure. I should point that out that when you look at the films, there's a whole lot of other adventures in between each one. From, yeah. You know, Chanel, Chanel commercials and all kinds of interesting little roads you go down I mean, we, that you explore as an right, artist. And, and, right. And by the way, we... This is the other thing. I mean, it's not like we do commercials. We've done two of them, usually because of personal things. And then we yeah. go, wouldn't it be great to hang around Coco Chanel's atelier and work with Carl? Wouldn't that be great? Or, like, we can't do a help out on a wedding that it doesn't – we don't take as seriously as the biggest film we've ever done, <laughs> right? I mean, I, Anna, I always help out Anna on the Met and I always quietly do the little performance. And this year involved – Visiting the Vatican, I kid you not, right? And, you know, working with an iconic uh, friend of mine to, to whip up a show because we needed something, you know. And that, that was as big and as complicated a show as anything We're else. We're talking about the Met Ball, if people yeah. don't know. Yeah. And Anna is Anna Winter. Well, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a the next-door neighbour volunteer, but I always do get rather heavily involved. And it's a... It's a it's it's an enriched it's a rich experience. I do it because we the Met was so great to us in terms of costume research. It's an amazing institution and it's a great adventure and there's no awards at the end of it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so um 
I know we, God, I wish we could get through all of them individually, but just say a little bit about um, the, the movies you have made and whether they fulfilled the visions that you had yeah. because it's such an obsessive road for you to get to actually making a film. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've pulled out people like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio with Romeo and Juliet and, you know, Nicole Moulin Rouge changed everything for her. Yeah. You've, you've really got a great sense of casting as well as just the, you know, your own vision. Well, it's interesting because I always see it to a street. I mean, Nicole changed everything for me too and Leonardo, you know, changed many things in my life too. It's interesting that you identify both those um, artists because they're also great friends and it's not that every single person I work with becomes the deepest of friends, but it's a life for us. It's never, and it's always been a life for me, I guess, circling back to the funny stories back in Heron's Creek. I only, even that on the street thing, I, it's, I think that's why I've learned to be so, I've, it takes me so long to go yes, because once I go yes, there is no knock it off in six months or I'm not, I'd love to be a shooter. I think of so many scripts that came my way or people saying, you know, you know, I won't say them because then you see a headline tomorrow that says, oh, he was going to do this and going to do that. But sure, all that stuff comes my way. I mean, I will tell you that the Harry Potter, you know, I, I was about to commit to doing Moulin Rouge and Robert said to me, look, there's this thing called Harry Potter. And I was like, oh, what's that? Wow. You know, he said it's on the cover of Time magazine. And I said, oh, you know, someone else can do that really well. I want to reinvent the musical. <laughs> you know, because my, my kids go like, Dad, what were you thinking? Right? <laughs> they were right. Uh, maybe not. But you did reinvent the musical. Well, look, it's a life experience. And this is why when I used to do that on a scale, I mean, everything's relative. You know, your first opera at the Sydney Opera House has the same scale as your first movie. But there is a truth now that, when I do commit to things, the scales are very big and so I want to make sure... And, you know, life is more complicated and layered and family and relationships mm. and, you know, some degree of public life and feeling responsible and living in around different countries and all that stuff. So, yes, it becomes harder. Although I, I always remember... I s not... A while ago, a few years ago, I was talking to Ridley Scott and I said, so really, what would you have done different? He said, well, mate, I would have said, like, yes, more often. Hmm. And a very wise old man said to me, well, he's not an old man because he's actually Sam's um, father, but he's very wise and I love Angus. He said to me, well, generally speaking, looking back, uh, you know, and he's a professor of French languages and very smart man. He says, not always, but on balance, because, like, he's 80 on balance, not always. I mean, obviously, jump out the window, no is good. But you tend to regret the things you said no to more than the things you said yes. Not always, mm. but generally speaking. And I do think that's probably true. Probably mm. true. Um, the movies. I do not think that any movie I've made... Look, it's not that any movie I made match actually what I initially kind of envision and uh, the the vision part of my head is pretty strong at get-go because I, I live it, the research period, it sort of comes there and then, of course, there's a big difference between being in your head and collaborating with great artists and I'm surrounded by great, great artists, you know, uh, my, not, my wife being the number one but also Craig Pierce, 
a co-writer, school friend. When we get together, we rock, you know. Like, we... Those collaborations, and there are many of them. I mean, whether it's a new collaborator like Jay-Z or, you know, it's another collaboration with Leonardo and or Craig, who I've worked with since, you know, school, school being at school. The thing about those things are that I'm starting from a place where whatever's in the head is never really going to be realised. It's kind of too... But I know in the films... Of, so they're never really fully realised, none of them. But I know when they're born, meaning I guess like a child, when you are carrying a child, you know something about this, there's all the fun part of getting one <laughs> and then you're <laughs> pregnant and then you carry the child and then you have all these visions and will it be good, will it be bad and all that. But your focus becomes, is it living? And it, I know when a film has crossed the line. What I say, this is now, this is now working, it's living. And then the next thing is, because they tend to be unusual children, is I have to... Um, I really get involved in the communication of it, which is called selling, right? Because so many people have believed in this unusual child and it's got so many aunts and uncles and cousins and, and you know, it's rough and tumble out there. There can be, there's a, it's not to in any way do I go like, oh, the critics or oh, this and that, because everyone has their function in their job. But a lot of my children were misunderstood early on and... So I had to go out and make sure that they got to meet people, to meet audiences, to connect. And, you know, like take Moulin Rouge, you know, you were around for that, Jen. I mean, you might have got strictly boring, but not everybody did. And it's usually 50-50. You know, and even o Owen Gleiberman, I was really amazed that Owen Gleiberman, who, who really slated Moulin Rouge when it came out, he... He was a Entertainment Weekly... Weekly, critic, yeah. Critic. And you know what? He wrote a book recently and he said, I've only rewritten one review in my life. And I just went like, wow, that has never happened. Now, we let's not get into critics and reviews because I really think they're very important. I mean, I read reviews and go, mm, do I want to see that movie? I think good critique, bad critique, it's like anything, you know. Yeah. But, um, and then, but I've always seen it as my responsibility to really get out there and make a noise for the give it a chance you know let yeah. it get to an audience and then once it finds yeah. its audience it's kind of out of your hands you know right. you vaguely what happens is a, a la romeo and juliet i was in england recently and i went to secret cinema i saw you tweeting about that it, it was looked bon amazing it's and you got your, your kids got to see it for the they've first never time. seen romeo and juliet so i was we we're in france we we're at a place in paris and we said let's go Secret cinema. I know the guys that did Milan Rouge. So I go over. I mean, you're talking six thousand people. There were, there were, Verona Beach theme parks, rides, you know, raves, nightclubs, merch, um, and then you go on. And I, I surprised introduced the movie, and you know, sixty thousand people saw it. The film went back into the English movie charts just based on that. So it's another way of an audience. I mean, my kids saw it for the first time. But it's another way for a new generation. Have they generation. not been interested before or it just never came up? It never comes up. Because like, they're old enough. Yeah, I know. It's a funny... I guess it's a real question. It's never come up. And I think because they've grown up around it all and they're surrounded by it so much and they've got such definition. The, my two children are truly themselves. And my daughter has amazing style. Nothing to do with her mother, right? It's like her style, you know? Um, she can put stuff together and you just go like really can that work and it does you know my yeah. son 
he's a mythomaniac. You think I know about primary myth? He would run me around like he would, he'll kill me when it comes to pick a, you know, European versus Chinese myth, he'll kill you on it and he's 13, you know? Because he's so into Marvel comics and things, you know? I'm sorry, I got you off the path again. Yeah, on the path. Well, I guess... And then you, I have Romeo one last and Juliet. Question. So Romeo and Juliet is like that child has grown up. It's had a relationship with a whole lot of people. It's distant to me. It's so distant that when I sat there watching it with my kids with six thousand people in an outdoor screening, I I looked at it back and I went like, oh yeah, right. I went, oh that shot and oh yeah, gee, remember that day? And but it was like your child's grown up. It's fallen in love. It's got married to an audience. And every now and then it kind of turns up at a festival and you go like, oh, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember your childhood, but really you're an adult, <laughs> you know? Um, one question I ask everybody in this podcast is just about the, what it is about Australians that have so just taken over Hollywood. We talked about Joel before, yeah. but... It's a new wave now and we are a really small country. Statistically speaking, people are always shocked how many Australians are now here, not just working, but, you know, they're household names and, you know, they're, they've got these massive careers. Do you think there's something about being Australian? There's a theory. Everybody has a yeah. theory, I think. Yeah, I do. I, I, right. I want to hear yours. Well, I was actually, as I told you, a few nights ago up at the Consulate General's here in New York City. Australian Consulate Generals, and there was a group of Aussies around the table. Uh, Deborah Lee was there, and we were talking about, you know, this connectivity between America and Australia and creativity and all that. But one thing I just proffered or put out there, because I not only feel it, it's not a theory, I lived it, which is we are at what is the, how, why, why such a giant cultural imprint from, from a relatively small country? in the rest of the world. And my absolute heartfelt belief is two things. One, we've got to give thanks to our forefathers and mothers who back in the 70s, as early as that, said, look, you know what? We're on the edge of the world, but we are going to have a film school and we're going to put government money into that. And we are going to have a National Institute of Dramatic Art and we're going to put money into that. And even though most Australians are not into opera, let's build an iconic house of culture. And you know what? I think they took a, a um, you know, they did a, a, a census, so to speak, when they were building the opera house. And even though most people are not into opera, they said that's one of the greatest things we've ever done. And I think that what that did, that early wave of putting money in, and remember, we had a film industry that was born at the same time as Hollywood. And it was robust. And it was, in fact, killed by Hollywood distribution. But that's another story. Yeah. But I think this support of the arts by this small country um, provided an environment that said it's possible and made it important, as important as sport, which I really revered. I just can't play it very well, right? And... So there's one thing. And then the second thing is, although we are extremely... I mean, I think Australians buy as more magazines than anyone in the world. They used to, before magazines were maybe not... Before 
before, if you ask a young person what a magazine is, they go, they don't know what you're talking about, right? But, but it means that Australians do generally look, look, the word overseas, we think that's common usage. It's not. Like the idea of going OS, like we look out to the rest of the world. Like so I th- having a gap year and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's just... They don't do that here. It's common... It would be very unusual for a young Aussie not to have gone around the world by the age of 21. You can meet 50-year-old Americans who are hugely sophisticated and maybe went to Europe once. Maybe. You know what I mean? What I mean is the out, looking out to the world and understanding there's a world out there and yet being culturally enriched in a fairly isolated place has allowed a paradoxical, I think, confidence in a sense and a fearlessness in creativity and at the same time being able to say, well, well why not? And not... I think we don't go out and join an industry. I think we still think it's a privilege and an adventure and it's exciting. And, you know, it's called play acting, screen play. I think we still play. You know, it's still childlike in our eyes when we look out at the rest of the world and go, I'm going to make something or tell a story. Well, um, I'm so grateful to you. I know you're in the middle of big decisions and we're all going to be very excited to see what's next. Retirement's looking good, just saying. <laughs> so thank you very no, much for your time. And by the way, can I add to this podcast that actually um, you've been a big part of this journey too. I mean, um, oh, oh, you don't know. You. I mean, you know, in the, in the comment area in journalism and all of that, the whole world is changing dramatically. The tectonic plates of history are changing dramatically and a lot of things that we took for granted are not there anymore, which is someone like you who actually, yes, you have a job, you you were there commenting on film, you were there, but beyond that, you're always connecting filmmakers like you were the teller of the narrative of Australian film but also an active part of it. And I, you know, I'm just saying I've known you for a long time and, you know, you've been a big part of Simonai's journey too. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, until next time. Till next time. I better go and cook something up. Either that or retire. <laughs> Thanks. Let my kids take over. <laughs> Keep an eye out for whatever project Baz finally moves forward with. And since we know he never does anything halfway, whatever it is, we know we're in for a treat. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look me up on iTunes. Listener.